friend in knowing where she In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer is listing Old Testament individuals who by faith pleased God. And in verse 32, like so many preachers, he runs out of time. He says, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. Now we've been taking the time to look at some of these individuals, and this morning we come to this guy named Jephthah. How many of you are familiar with Jephthah? You know, if Samson is the most familiar judge, Jephthah may be the least familiar judge. He isn't exactly a household name. And that is not only true today, it was also true in his day. We said that Samson was probably voted most likely to succeed in his graduating class. Well, Jephthah would have been voted least likely to succeed. In fact, he was kicked out of school. He was a reject. And we see the account of Jethro in parts of three chapters in Judges 10 to 12. And I want us to go back there today and I want us to pick out four principles that we learn from the life of Jethro. I've listed them in your bulletin. They're real simple. Principle number one, God confirms whether men repent. And we're going to see that in chapter 10, verses 10 to 16. But before that, I want to back up just a little bit to get the setting in verse 6. It says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the sons of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Thus they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the sons of Ammon. Now if you've been reading through the book of Judges, this is deja vu all over again. This is the pattern of the period of the Judges. Israel would sin, God would hand them over to their enemies, Israel would repent, God would raise up a judge, a deliverer to bring them back, and they would continue on that cycle. And notice verse 8, it says, They afflicted and crushed the sons of Israel that year. For 18 years they afflicted all the sons of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in Gilead in the land of the Amorites. And so for 18 years they are crushed, and the ones that are getting it the worst is the tribe of Gilead. Now Gilead was the half-tribe of Manasseh. They were the half-tribe that didn't come across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. They stayed on the eastern side. And so they are bordering the people of Ammon. And so they're getting the worst of this. And then notice verse 9. It continues. The sons of Ammon crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim so that Israel was greatly distressed. Have you got the picture? Ammon is on the east side of the Jordan where they live. And they are distressing this half-tribe, this tribe of Gilead, now they cross over the Jordan to where Judah is, the people of Israel are, and now they get serious. 
And notice verse 10. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, for indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Now that sounds like repentance, doesn't it? I mean, they got some good words here. They say, we have sinned, and then they get specific. We've forsaken the Lord, and we have fallen into idolatry. We read that verse and say that's repentance, but you know what? God doesn't think so. In fact, God's response might surprise some of us. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the, count them, the Egyptians, the Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines? Also, when the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Mayanites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will no longer deliver you. Wow. What's God saying? Well, God is saying, we've been through this before. I have delivered you from seven enemies. And the thanks that I got each time was that you forsook me and went back to serve those other gods. God is saying, you have repented so much that the repentance is becoming just rote. And it's not reality. And so God says, I've had it. I'm finished. I'm sick and tired of your foxhole prayers. I'm done with you. And then look at verse 14. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. You have chosen to live with and for these gods day in and day out. Now that it's crunch time, why are you calling out to me? Go call out to them. Ouch. Does God ever get this fed up with His people? Yeah. See, some of you are sitting here today and you're caught in a cycle of sin in your life that has never been broken. And you know why that is? Because you really don't understand repentance. If I talk to you about the sin you're struggling with and I say to you, have you repented of that? And you say, yeah. I, I, I confessed it to God and I asked Him to forgive me. Well, let me ask you something. Is that the measure of repentance? Is the measure of repentance, I said the right words? Is the measure of repentance, I shed a tear? Is the measure of repentance, I really meant it? No. What's the measure of repentance? 
Well, God says to Israel, I've had it with you guys. I'm not going to forgive you. Go ask your gods for help. And what does Israel do? The only thing they can do. Look at verse 15. The sons of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please deliver us this day. Now, I looked at those words trying to find something significantly different between that and the first time, and there really isn't anything there. God says, go away. Call out to your gods that you've chosen to live for. And they turn around and come back and say, God, we've sinned. Forgive us. Deliver us. Same words. What's the difference? Look at verse 16. So... They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. Ah, there's the difference. There's a change of direction. You see, the word repentance literally means to turn around. And now they're showing the reality of repentance because what are they doing? They're turning away from the idols. And they're turning to the Lord. You see, that is the measure of repentance. Repentance is not about saying the right words. Repentance is not about crying a few tears. Repentance is about turning away from whatever it is you're involved in and turning to the Lord. Matthew chapter 3, when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to John the Baptist for baptism, you remember what he said to them? He said, what are you doing here, you brood of vipers? Now, that's not the way to grow a church. When people come for baptism, you call them a brood of vipers. But you have to remember that John the Baptist had the baptism of repentance. It wasn't like our baptism. They were coming saying, we repent. You know what John said to them? After he insulted them, then he said in Matthew 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. If this is real repentance, then show me by bearing fruit. You see, the measure of repentance is the reality of turning away from your sin and turning to God. And that's what Israel does here. And God confirms that at the end of verse 16 because after they put away their foreign gods and served the Lord, it says... And he could not bear the misery of Israel any longer. You see, when they truly turned to God, God truly turned to them. God looks pretty tough here. Go away, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'll never deliver you. And they genuinely repent and we see the compassion of God. When they really turn, He really turns. Now, I can't stress enough how important this first principle is. God confirms whether men repent. You see, I can ask you if you've repented and you say, sure, I've repented. But that's not the bottom line. Whether you think you've repented or not is not the bottom line. Because repentance is not about words. Repentance is about 
reality. Can I say something that should be obvious? If you're confessing your sin while you're not really intending to change, that's not repentance. If you're confessing your sin but not really planning to turn from it, you might as well save your breath because God is not that stupid. You can't come to God saying the right words while still hanging on to your idolatry and your sin. He requires reality. If you confess the sin of lust, and you've still got a Hustler magazine tucked under your mattress, is that repentance? No. Burn your magazine and then come talk to God. If you're confessing having an illicit relationship, maybe even an illicit emotional relationship with someone besides your spouse, and you come to confess to the Lord, and you've still got the cell phone number in your cell phone, that's not repentance. Throw away your cell phone. And then come talk to God. You see, you don't confirm the reality of repentance. God does. Second principle. God chooses what men reject. Notice chapter 10 and verse 17. Then the sons of Ammon were summoned, and they camped in Gilead, and the sons of Israel gathered together and camped in Mizpah. Now, if you look on a map, there's two Mizpahs. This is the Mizpah of Gilead. So they're all in the, in the area of Gilead and they're lined up, squared off for battle. Verse 18, the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the sons of Ammon? He shall become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now the leaders of Gilead are the ones asking this question because their land is the battlefield. This battle is going to take place on their home turf and their homes are at stake here. So they're asking the question, who's going to lead us? Who's going to deliver us? We're all lined up in battle formation and we don't have a general. Who's it going to be? And in chapter 11, we see God's answer to that question. Chapter 11 and verse 1 says, Now Jephthah... The Gileadite was a valiant warrior, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead was the father of Jephthah. Jephthah was a mighty warrior. He was from the tribe of Gilead, so he should have been here fighting. But Jephthah's got some flaws. His father was Gilead, that's great, but his mother was a harlot. Whoops. He's from a dysfunctional family. And notice verse 2. Gilead's wife bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Now what's interesting is this didn't seem to become an issue for them until they started to discuss the inheritance. 
and it became an issue of greed. And so these brothers run Jephthah off. Verse 3, So Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, which is up north of Gilead. And worthless fellows gathered themselves about Jephthah, and they went out with him. He became the ringleader of a ragtag group of worthless fellows. He's kind of like a Robin Hood figure up here in Tob. Notice verse 4. came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. When the sons of Ammon fought against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. The battle starts, and they say, whoops, we have gotten rid of our Savior. We better go get him. And so they go up and ask Jephthah to come and be their deliverer. Now, does that remind you of anybody? I think Jephthah is a picture to us of the Lord Jesus. Jesus had a questionable birth. I'm sure a lot of people said, well, we know who his mom is, but who's his daddy? In fact, in John chapter 8 and verse 41, the Pharisees are speaking with Jesus and they say, we were not born of fornication. What's the implication? They thought Jesus was. And a little later in that same chapter, in chapter 8 and verse 48, they, they say to him, you are a Samaritan. What's a Samaritan? A half-breed. Half-Jew, half-Gentile. They're implying your father is some Gentile. And so you had an illicit birth. That was true of Jesus from man's perspective. Jesus had a ragtag group of followers. What was the accusation against Jesus? He was a friend of sinners. He was always eating with tax collectors and sinners. The ragtag group that hung around him was not very reputable. And then Jesus was rejected by his people. John 1.11 says he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.7, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief corner stone. And so in Jephthah, we have a picture of the Lord Jesus. And with that in mind, look at his response in verse 7. They say, come and be our chief. And then in verse 7 it says, Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now when you're in trouble? Does that sound familiar? That's the same thing God said to them in chapter 10 and verse 13. He says, You've hated me and rejected me. Now when you're in trouble, are you going to come ask me? To help you? And the reason he's bringing this up is the same thing, same reason God brought it up, because he would like to get from them, uh, we were wrong, maybe a little we're sorry. You know, he's trying to bring them, just as God was, he's trying to bring them to repent. And notice verse 8. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that we that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Notice his question. Verse 9, So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, 
if you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon and the Lord gives them up to me, will I become your head? That's interesting wording here because they say in verse 6, we want you to come and be our chief. That word chief means deliverer. Now they move up a step and say, we're going to call you head. And so Jephthah asked the question, if I deliver you, will I be your head? Now that's the same question that Jesus is asking each one of us. You see, He can't deliver you unless you first repent. And He won't come as your helper. He will only come as your head, your king, your Lord. And notice the response in verse 10. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is witness between us. Surely we will do as you have said. They entrusted themselves to this rejected deliverer. And then notice verse 11. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. They made him head and chief. They made him Lord and Savior. And verse 11 concludes by saying, And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. He made his commitment to them before the Lord. He said, I'll keep my word. And that's what Jesus does for us when we repent and make him Lord and Savior. So Jephthah the reject, Jephthah the son of a harlot, Jephthah, the underdog, is chosen by God to be the deliverer of Israel. And not only is this a picture to us of the Lord Jesus, I think there's a lesson in it for each of us. Maybe you're sitting here today and you fit the description of a reject for one reason or another. Maybe it's a questionable birth. Maybe it's a dysfunctional family. Maybe you've been forsaken by a parent or even both parents. Or maybe you've been forsaken by a spouse. Or maybe you've been abused in some way. You know, when a person has that kind of background, even when they become a Christian, they often think that because of their past, they're not qualified to be anything for God or to do anything for God. They often view themselves as an underdog. And unfortunately, many Christians reinforce that attitude. You ever hear Christians say, well, you know, because of your past, you're really not going to be able to amount to very much in the church. Don't expect to do too much because you've got baggage. It's amazing to me how Christians have an uncanny knack of keeping rejects at arm's length. And that's why this passage is so refreshing to me. Because here we have God Almighty choosing an unlikely Savior if there ever was one, the Son of of a harlot. In fact, if you go back to the law in Deuteronomy 23, 2, it says anyone with an illicit birth is not allowed in the assembly of the Lord. 
You explain how that works. I don't understand it. But here's God reaching out to this one who is rejected by his people because God chooses what men reject. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, that's probably so-and-so sitting down the aisle, think again. Because 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, God chose the foolish things of the world. Who's that? That's you. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. Jephthah is not the only reject in Scripture. Most of the other judges are flawed individuals. They've got all kinds of warts. And we're surprised that God chose them. Joseph, who became the Savior of the world in his day, was rejected by his brothers. David, the great king, was Samuel's last choice among his brothers. And even after he was anointed, he didn't take the throne for seven years because he was rejected by Saul and by Israel. God chooses what men reject. And if you've experienced a lot of rejection in your life, please grasp this principle. Please take this to heart. God chooses you. God wants to turn your opposition into opportunities. I love the verse in Psalm 27.10. It says, Though my father and my mother have forsaken me, the Lord will take me up. God chooses what men reject. Third principle. God charges what men render. Now, Jephthah is a kind of Cinderella story. He's, he's the reject that's elevated to the place of honor and authority. The only problem with the Jephthah story is it doesn't end happily ever after. Jephthah gets the assignment to lead them in battle, and he does what any good leader would do. He's going to find out what the problem is. So if you look at verse 12, he comes to the king of Ammon and he says, what are you invading us for? What, what's the issue here? And in verse 13, the king of Ammon says, Israel took my land, so give it back. Now, we don't have time to walk through these verses, but it's very evident if you do that Jephthah is a master negotiator. Because in verses 14 to 27, he lays out three convincing arguments. Argument number one is from history, and we read that in verses 14 to 22, and he essentially says... We didn't take this land from the Ammonites. Now, these are the Ammonites. You remember where the Ammonites came from? The Ammonites came from the illicit relationship between Lot and his younger daughter. That's Ammon. So, so he says to them, we didn't take this land from the Ammonites. We took this land from the Amorites. Good point also tells me that Jephthah knew his Bible because you go back to Numbers chapter 21 and you read there that Moses defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And he sums it up in verse 23, notice. He says, since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then to possess it? 
I mean, we took this land from the Amorites. What do you guys, the Ammonites, have anything to do with this? Read your history. So his first argument is from history. His second argument is from theology in verses 23 to 25. In fact, look at the end of verse 24. He says, so whatever the Lord our God has driven out before us, we will possess it. The truth of the matter is, we didn't take the land. God gave it to us. God ran the Amorites out and gave us this land. So theologically, it's a gift from God. And then he has a little sarcasm at the beginning of verse 24. He says, do you not possess from Chemosh your God what Chemosh your God gives you to possess? In other words, you've got a problem with this. Go pray to your God, Chemosh. Let him give you something. So the argument from history, we didn't take it from the Amorites. We, from, the, from the Ammonites, we took it from the Amorites. The argument from theology, God is the one who gave it to us. And then there's an argument from reason in verses 26 and 27. And if you notice the end of verse 26, he says, we have lived in it for 300 years. Why did you not recover them within that time? That's a pretty logical argument. We, we've been living here for 300 years. Where, are you, where have you guys been? After 300 years, we have some eminent domain here that kind of sets in. And so he makes these great arguments, but the king of Ammon disregards the peace talks and he initiates the battle. And so we read the battle beginning in verse 29. It says, Now the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah so that he passed through Gilead and Manasseh. Then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he went on to the sons of Ammon. Now, understand what's going on here. He, he's got the Word of God confirming that he's doing right. Verse 29 says he's got the Spirit of God leading him, and he's moving forward with positive momentum. Do you know what he does? Look at verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then... It shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Now, he didn't need to do this. God was already moving him forward in victory. He had the Spirit of God on him. He had God's promise that he was going to have victory. But in the midst of that, he makes a rash vow. This master negotiator is now negotiating with God. And notice what he says. It's an if-then argument. If you'll deliver me, then I'll give you whatever comes out of my house first when I get home. Now, in that day, when you went to battle or even went away for a while, you put your prize animals in your house. You know, you put Mabel the milk cow in there and Put your favorite sheep in there in your house. So, so he's thinking, when I come home, one of those will come out kind of like a pet wagging its tail to see me. And God, I'm going to give that animal to you as a sacrifice. Well, verses 32 and 33 tell us that God gave him the victory. And then slide down to verse 34. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, Behold, his daughter was coming out to meet him with tambourines and with dancing. Now she was his one and only child, 
Besides her, he had no son or daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot take it back. Wow. That's tragic. What are the lessons here for us? Well, I think lesson number one is that this is again a picture of Christ. Israel is rejoicing in their deliverance and one man is weeping. That's a picture of you and me. We rejoice in our salvation because one man in the Garden of Gethsemane was weeping, saying, not my will, but thine be done. But I think secondly, it teaches us that obedience is better than sacrifice. I think a good commentary on this passage is 1 Samuel 15, 22, where Samuel said to Saul, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Have you ever considered that obedience doesn't just mean doing all that God asked you to do. It also means not doing more than God asked you to do. What's the principle? God charges what men render. A vow is voluntary. But once a vow is made you are committed to keep it before the Lord. That's why Jephthah says at the end of verse 35, I cannot take it back. Deuteronomy 23.21 says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin for you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. What's the lesson? Be careful with your vows. You see, it's no excuse to say my vow involved more than I originally intended. Well, that was true of Jephthah. He didn't intend for his daughter to come out the front door. But he was committed to his vow. You may say, well, I didn't really know all that I was getting into when I got married. Nobody does. But you made a vow. It was voluntary. Nobody twisted your arm. You didn't have to get married. You could have stayed single. 1 Corinthians 7 gives you some great reasons to stay single. You chose to get married. You made a vow. You're committed to your vow before the Lord. You say, but I was young. I didn't understand the full implications. What's so complicated about till death do us part? You didn't say difficult words. You made a vow before the Lord. And you're to keep that vow. Several years ago, I went to a conference. A fellow that, uh, I won't name him, but a fellow well-known that travels the country giving seminars. And at the end of his week-long seminar, he had everybody uh, stand up and make a vow to the Lord that they were going to read the Bible at least five minutes a day for the rest of their lives. I didn't stand up. In fact, it infuriated me. 
still infuriates me. Because I know that those people didn't keep that vow. We had to stand up making a vow to the Lord. I will read the Bible at least five minutes a day. Well, I knew I was going to break that vow, so I didn't stand up. But you don't make vows frivolously. Because when you make a vow, it's voluntary, but when you make a vow, God's going to hold you to that vow. Ecclesiastes 5.5 5 says, It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Better not to do it. Now, I know what you're thinking. What happened to Jephthah's daughter? Some of you are sad right now. Let me, let me lift you up a little bit. Look at, look at verse 36. So she said to her father, My father, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you have said, since the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the sons of Ammon. I like this girl. She comes out and he says, I made a vow. And she says, do what you vowed. Verse 37, she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, I and my companions. Then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made and she had no relations with a man. Thus it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Now there's considerable disagreement on what happened here. One view is that he killed his daughter and offered her up as a sacrifice. In fact, that's probably the view you would come to on your first reading of this passage. But let me give you several reasons why I don't think that's so. Reason number one, human sacrifice is condemned in the law in Leviticus 18.21. So even if he wanted to do this, he, and he goes to the temple and he goes to the priest and says, here's my daughter, I want to sacrifice her on the altar, the priest is going to say, time out, hold it, we can't do that. That's against the law. And even Jephthah knew that was against the law because we noted earlier, he knew the Scriptures. So he knew that. And if you look at verse 31, it's rather interesting. He, he says, whatever comes out of my doors first, notice the end of the verse, it shall be the Lord's and... I will offer it up as a burnt offering. That word and in the Hebrew can be translated or. So he may be saying, whatever comes out of the door will be offered to the Lord or shall be the Lord's or I will offer it up as a burnt offering. You say, well, if she wasn't sacrificed, what was the offering? Well, she would have been offered the same way Samuel was. She would have been taken to the temple and said, here's my daughter and I'm turning her over as a temple virgin for the rest of her life at the temple. And I think there's good evidence of that because if you notice verse 38, what is she weeping about? She's not weeping about her death. She's weeping about her virginity. She's going to be a virgin for the rest of her life. And then look at verse 39. It says, at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to her according to the vow which he had made and he killed her. Is that what it says? No. And she had no relations with a man. 
In fact, verse 40 says that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah. That word commemorate is a word that can be translated to talk to. It may even have the idea that they went up every year to the temple and talked to her for four days. You say, well, wait a minute. I mean, if, if all he was doing was taking his daughter to the temple, then why was he so upset? Well, he was so upset, number one, for her personal loss. You see, he had known what it was like to be uh, in a dysfunctional family. Now he sort of imposes that on his daughter and says, you're going to go to the temple, not a voluntary way, you're just going to go to the temple and be there serving in the temple. But secondly, he had a personal loss because she was his only daughter. She was the only source of him having an heir, and now that door was closed. And so there was personal loss for Jephthah. Whatever the meaning, whatever the interpretation of the passage, here's the lesson. Don't make rash promises and vows to God. If you open your mouth, God will require for you to pay what you say. God charges what men render. And then real quickly, point four. God chastens when men rebel. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. Verse 1 says, Then the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the sons of Ammon without calling us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you. Now, Ephraim is Manasseh's brother. This is the fine, a fine way to treat the deliverer. He goes and delivers Israel, and these guys come and say, Why didn't you invite us to the battle? We're, we're so mad, we're gathered in battle array and we're going to burn your house down. And Jephthah says to them in verse 2, I did call you and you didn't show up. And so it escalates into a battle and they have a battle between Gilead and Ephraim on both sides of the Jordan River. And Jephthah leads Gilead in the victory over the, the tribe of Ephraim. And they're scattered in the battle and, and so they're licking their wounds, and they're heading back to cross the Jordan to go back home. And notice what it says in verse 5. It's one of the funniest passages of Scripture. It says, The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan opposite Ephraim. And it happened when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to them, Are you an Ephraimite? Now, they're coming back home trying to cross the Jordan to get back to the western side where they live. And they come back and, and the people of Gilead have the, the river covered. So they got to ask permission to cross. Now, all the Jews look the same. So they say to them, are you an Ephraimite? And they say, no. And then, verse 6 says, they would say to them, say, Shibboleth. But he said, Sibboleth. For he could not pronounce it correctly. Then they seized him and slew him at the fords of the Jordan. Thus there fell at that time 42,000 of Ephraim. This is good, if you like action. They come to the river. They look like every other Jew. So the Gileadites say, are you an Ephraimite? And he says, no, not me. Say Shibboleth. That's the word for stream. Say, say Shibboleth. And he says, Sibboleth. Because he can't pronounce his, his H's. And they kill him. It's kind of like me. If I, I took three years of Spanish and I can't roll my R's. So it's kind of like me. If I, was, if, I, if I looked the part, I was going to go back to Mexico 
and I go down to the, to the river and they say, uh, say Rio Grande. And I say, Rio Grande. <laughs> and they go, you're the guy, and they kill me. That's what's happening here. They're trying to come back and they're defeated. And not only are they defeated, but they are wiped out in a great slaughter, which really tells us the principle God chastens when men rebel. And then verse 7 closes our story of Jephthah. It says, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. What do we learn from Gilead? Your past shouldn't hinder your present and your future. Matthew was a tax collector. Zacchaeus ripped people off for years. Mary Magdalene had seven demons. Jephthah was the son of a harlot. Please get this. God chooses and uses what men reject. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word today. We thank You for this example.